Well, this morning, uh, we are not, in fact, jumping into our spring series. In, in a couple weeks, we are picking back up in the book of Romans. If you were with us in the fall, you might remember we've been walking through that book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're about halfway. And so in two weeks, we're going to pick that back up, and it's going to carry us through all the way up until Easter. But this morning, before we get back into the Romans stuff... Uh, what I kind of, where I felt led and, and guided by the Lord over the break, where we should begin this year is really by looking at investment, looking at what does it mean for us as followers of Christ to live in light of eternity? How do we use the time that we've been given by the Lord, this short, precious time on earth? How do we use it to its fullest? How do we live lives that bring God glory and honor and praise? How do we live in such a way that we are a part of his work, a part of his mission here on earth? How do we live in such a way that our legacy extends far beyond this week, this year, this lifetime? How do we live in such a way that we are, in fact, living up to that eternal potential that God gives us every single day? And I think this is a great time to talk about it because at the beginning of the year, the beginning of the semester, we're often thinking about investment, right? We set goals, we maybe have resolutions, we're, we're thinking about how am I going to be investing my time, my energy, my finances towards what I believe matters most? Do I want to spend more time in this project at work? Do I wanna, do I wanna commit more money into these types of investments or to pay for this type of stuff? Like, am, am I trying to use my time? Am I trying to use my energy? Do I wanna get away with my family more? Do I wanna spend more time with my friends? Do I need to get into a Bible study? Like, we're thinking about investment. And so often these investments are, are not inherently wrong, but sometimes they're short-sighted. Sometimes when we think about investment, we actually are thinking maybe a, a day, a week, a month, a year ahead when the Lord has a very different perspective. And when we invest for these short-term things, again, it's not wrong, but that, if that's the entirety of our investment strategy for our lives, then we're not in fact reaching the potential that God has in fact blessed us with. When we invest in the short term, it can just, it leads us in a lot of different directions as we see in this guy's life. A lot of people don't like to be touched it doesn't bother me. That's the way the Mohawk really works. I'm Bob Bagnell, and I go by Mohawk Bob. From the beginning, I told my wife I would shave it off. That was a complete lie. And then we decided to go and turn it into kind of like a little billboard. It's been about five years. We do about 300 Mohawks a year. So we're up to about 1,600. We get commissioned all the time to put companies up there, bands. It's just silly. This is my big part-time job. It takes about an hour, two hours a day. My wife perfects them. I wear them to work, church, concerts. Everywhere I go, I like my hair up. I don't even know how to live anymore without a mohawk. I want to keep this until my wife kills me. I drive a hearse. Not a lot of people think that's really romantic, but it's a great car. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. You know, there's a lot of ways we can invest our time, our energy, our hair, right? There's a lot of ways that we can invest. 
And as I said, maybe short-term investments aren't wrong. They're not bad. I mean, I love that we've got a manger scene above this dude's head in Christmas time. I love it. But the reality is that, as I said, God has given us an opportunity to not just invest in the short term, to not just look ahead in this, this shorter, this, this short, this minuscule life that we have in the scope of eternity. Instead, God has given us an opportunity to be a part of his work that affects all of eternity. Every single day that we have, every moment we've been given by the Lord has the divine potential to impact eternity. This is this is an incredible truth. This is an incredible concept that we need to carry with us as followers of Jesus Christ. He wants us to live with this in mind. And so in fact, as Jesus was speaking to his followers in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 16 is where we're gonna be this morning. If you wanna go there in your Bible, go there on your phone while the verse is on the screen. Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. As Jesus is speaking to his followers, to his disciples in Matthew 16, He essentially is trying to point them in this direction. He's trying to broaden their perspective and help them understand that their lives have so much more to them. There's so much more potential than simply catching the next fish or feeding your family the next week. Jesus is looking at these followers, these men who love him, who trust him, who've been walking with him for, for over a year at this point, and he's gonna tell them, look, you have a greater potential. You have, in fact, a more powerful trajectory than you quite understand. And so to help them move in this direction, to help them reach this potential, he's going to lay out some very simple yet difficult commands for those that want to follow him. Essentially, when we read this last part of Matthew 16, we're going to see that Jesus is giving his followers the direction to set their minds on what matters to the Lord. He's gonna call them to deny themselves, to take up their crosses and to follow him. And ultimately, he's gonna remind them that in all of this, that there is in fact, that in all this sacrifice and in all this discipline and all this effort, he's gonna remind them, you do in fact have a reward waiting for you. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week. It might not look the way that you think it's gonna look, but there is a reward for those who follow me faithfully, who obey my commands. That's the incredible hope and encouragement he offers to his disciples at the close of this teaching. So if you look with me in Matthew 16, starting in verse 21, we're told that from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. All right, so if we're reading this, we have to ask ourselves, okay, if we're talking about from that time on, what is that time? All right, so if you are unfamiliar, the beginning of Matthew 16, uh, Jesus is in his ministry, and he's, he's preaching and he's, he's performing miracles. And yet the people, the crowds around him, the Israelites that he's interacting with, they always want more. They're like, we need more proof. We want more signs. We want more wonders. We want more miracles. We want you to provide for these needs and those needs. And so in the midst of this demand, this dissatisfaction with what Jesus was already bringing, the message he was already preaching, the miracles he was already performing, Jesus pauses and he asks his followers, hey, who do people think that I am? Like they're making all these demands of me. They have all these requests. Who do they think I am? And so his followers tell him, they say, well, some think that you're like 
the, the, the new Elijah. They think you're a, a reskin of, of John the Baptist. They think you're a great prophet. And so Jesus then looks at him more pointedly and says, who do you think I am? And Peter looks at him and he says, you're the Christ. You're the chosen one. You're the savior. You're the son of God, the one who has come to deliver God's people. And Jesus says, yes, you got it. He says it's on this rock. And when he talks about the rock, it could be he's referring to Peter. It could be he's referring to Peter's confession. Either way, he says, this is what the church will be built upon. This is the foundation of your future lives, of your faith. It's, who, it's an understanding of who I am and what I have come to accomplish. And so after Jesus makes this bold proclamation, after he affirms this, this radical identification It's from that time on that Jesus began to show. Literally, the Greek term here is also explain. So Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem, he has to suffer, he has to be killed, and he has to be raised. And as Jesus is explaining this to him, this isn't brand new information. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he had been alluding to or or speaking kind of towards these truths that that he would be taken away, that he would spend time, that he would be dead and, and removed from them for a time, for three days. He had alluded to these things, but now, now Jesus is being explicit and he's showing them and he's explaining to them what is coming. It's the difference between performing a magic trick and explaining the magic trick, right? I could like show you, is this your card? (gasps) That's very different than if I'm like, yeah, so you just have it inside your mouth, you know, or whatever. Like that's, there's a big difference. Jesus is moving away from just the the alluding to, and he's saying, this is, I'm just going to lay it out for you. Here it is. And as his followers are beginning to understand these, these future events, it kind of unsettles them, right? Because he's not talking about these glorious things. He doesn't start talking about, yeah, and there's gonna be this mighty military victory and Rome will be defeated. What does he say? He says, I gotta go to that place where everyone hates me and I'm gonna suffer at their hands. I'm gonna be rejected by the ultimate, the Sanhedrin, right? This collection of leaders, this is the Sanhedrin, the, the, the ultimate leading council, religious leaders of Israel. He says, I'm gonna be rejected. I'm gonna be killed, but then I'm gonna be raised. And what's interesting is every time this shows up, Jesus is gonna talk about, he's gonna predict his death and resurrection multiple times in Matthew and in the other gospels. And it's wild because almost every single time, it feels like his disciples don't even catch the resurrection part because they just get so shook by the suffering. They get so shook by the death that even when Jesus does die, they're terrified and they're hiding in a room with a locked door saying, what are we gonna do? So Jesus says, this is what's coming. This is part of, this is the Lord's plan for my ministry here in this world. And again, his followers don't like it, especially Peter. And so Peter then took him aside, verse 22, and he began to rebuke Jesus, saying, God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. It must not happen. Right, in the same breath, Peter is referring to Christ as Lord, as God. And in the same breath, he's saying, this isn't the plan. 
Like, let me explain. He's explaining to the son of God what God's ultimate plan really is. He's like, no, no, you missed it. Good try, buddy. You know, like, you know, he's like, that's not what's going to happen. It must not. It must, and Peter's not saying, I don't like that, or that's difficult. Help me trust, help me believe. He says, nope, absolutely not. That's not gonna happen, right? And I love it. It's like when you've got a toddler who doesn't wanna put on their shoes, and you're like, you gotta put on your shoes, we gotta go out the door, and they say, no, I will not put on my shoes. And then you say, good luck living outside, bro. Like, <laughs> it's over, right? Peter is speaking as if he has the authority, as if he has the knowledge that Jesus lacks. He's rebuking Christ's predictions. And so in that moment, Jesus turns to Peter, eye to eye, and says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, literally the term for Satan, what we get from the Greek, it's just the, it's the term for adversary. He's saying, this is, this is adversarial, right? You are opposing me right now. Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me because you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. First thing that we see Jesus do as he's speaking to his followers about what is to come, as he's speaking to them about what the purpose and plan of his ministry is, is he's pointing them to a new perspective. He's giving them a new set of priorities. He's giving them a new set of interests. Right? He says, you are focused on your own or on mankind's interests. He says, but, but I need you to set your mind on something else. I need you to set your mind on God's interests. Right? Peter got the identity, but he missed the interest. He got the person of Christ, totally missed the purpose. And for us, we need this same perspective. To invest our lives in eternity, it requires the right perspective, the right priorities. My wife and I see this all the time with our kids. Our two oldest, nine and almost seven, they're, they're in school. And so every single morning during the school week, we're like, okay, we gotta go to school, right? That's just part of the deal. That's what we're doing. This isn't a surprise. It's not like a new thing. They've been doing it for a few years now. It's like, okay, we're going to school every Monday through Friday. And yet you would be shocked, or maybe not if you're a parent, you would not be shocked at all to learn that they don't always have that priority. Like they don't always have that perspective. And so I cannot tell you how many times I've said on, you know, a Monday morning, a Wednesday morning saying, okay, everything you do must move you towards school. Like that's, that's what we try to say. Like every step you take should be in that direction, right? So you need to get dressed. You need to eat your breakfast. You need to get your stuff, fill up your water bottle, right? Every step you take should move you closer to school. Yeah, but I need to finish this puzzle. Like I gotta, I gotta, no, puzzles are good. They expand your mind but they do not move you towards school. And so time and time again, what we're doing is we're having to reshape, reform, reprioritize our kids' interests. Jesus says, in order to invest your life in eternity, it requires having the right perspective, the right priorities. 
This is what Paul gets at when he writes to the church and to the Colossian believers. He says, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Keep thinking about things above, not things on earth. He says, that is your priority. That is your perspective. You're thinking beyond what do I need in this moment? to feel comfortable, to feel cozy, to feel fulfilled or affirmed. He says, that's not your goal. You're not trying to amass this little kingdom to build up your silos, to build your walls and, and have what you think you deserve or have what you think you need. He says, what you should be focused on, what you're seeking, what you're thinking about, what's consuming your time and your thoughts and your energy, it's the things above. It's what matters to God, not man's interest, but the Lord's. And yet when we walk through life, even as followers of Jesus Christ, so often we have these either explicit or implicit, these, these either conscious or subconscious assumptions about what must not happen. Just like Peter. Peter hears about Jesus suffering and dying. He's like, nope, that must not happen. And we look at that and we, we kind of laugh, we kind of scoff. And yet for us, as we walk through life, maybe sickness hits. Someone's health is failing them mentally or, or physically. And we have a tendency to look at that situation, to look at that circumstance and say, that must not happen. That must not happen for health to fail or for these maybe financial investments to fall apart, for this relationship to become strained. That, that must not happen. My kids shouldn't get into that stuff. My family members shouldn't struggle in these areas. That must not happen. Like I, I shouldn't lose my reputation or lose the, the, the affirmation I've tried to amass. I shouldn't lose the lifestyle that I've been pursuing. That must not happen. And when we make these assumptions, and we see our lives not going according to our plan, what we do is we blame the Lord. We say, God, uh, you know, I was praying to you and I've been trying to follow you and maybe I gave to you and I've sacrificed for you, but God, these things haven't turned out the way I wanted them. God, these things have happened that must not happen. Therefore, you failed me. Man, I've been there. Walking through sorrow and difficulty, struggle in my life, there are times where I suddenly realize, wow, I just assumed that must not happen. And yet here I am. And in that moment, I can either blame the Lord for not serving me the way I wanna be served, or I can draw closer to the Lord and confess to him my need for his purpose for his plan, for his strength, for his comfort. Realizing that God doesn't exist to serve me, but I, in fact, exist to serve him. And suddenly, when these tragedies hit, when these struggles appear, we don't, we don't just laugh it off. We don't just dismiss it. We grieve in tragedy. We mourn in difficulty. Yet we also have hope in eternity. 
we remember that God's interests are higher, that his plans are greater, that his purpose is mightier than what we see any given moment. Sometimes we get a glimpse. Sometimes we don't. And so for us as followers of Christ, to set our minds on the things above, I think first and foremost, we have to be a people who are reflective. That as we consider the year ahead or the week ahead or the semester ahead, we examine, okay, what are my priorities? What are the, what are the non-negotiable goals that I have? What are the non-negotiable roles and responsibilities that I've accepted? Where does that rank? What comes first in my day? What comes last? Where, what consumes my thoughts and my energy, my time, my finances? Where is that going? And I think as we consider these things, we should be bringing them to the Lord, prayerfully considering, saying, God, hey, here's the calendar I set up. Lord, here's the priority list that I've got. Lord, speak to me. God, guide me. Give me wisdom and strength and insight of how to live wisely to invest my life beyond tomorrow, but instead invest my life in eternity. It starts with the right priorities. It starts by setting our minds on God's interests, and it continues in the way, not just that we think, but in the way that we live. This is where Jesus goes with all of the disciples. So he told this to Peter, and now he turns to all of his disciples in verse 24. And he says, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Three commands. Two of them are absolutes. One of them is continual. He says, you need to deny, he, need, he must deny himself. Right? Count his life as lost. Consider or count himself as less important than the Lord. That's, that's what he means. He says, you move yourself down on the totem pole. He says, and not as you deny yourself, you also, though, take up your cross. And he's not speaking about just random suffering and difficulty. Like he's, you know, one of our kids has asthma. That's not his cross to bear. It is a difficulty. It's a concern. But that's not his cross. When Jesus speaks about this cross, it's, it's suffering for the sake of the gospel. It's suffering for the sake of Christ, something he'll explain in a moment. He says, and those are these kind of absolute moments. These are these absolute decisions. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then continually present, active, follow me. And what's interesting is that as Jesus lays out this kind of step-by-step, step, he's then gonna give us the flip side. He's gonna give us the alternative. He says, whoever wants to save his life will in fact lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life? Life. Now, as he's speaking of this term for life, sometimes we translate it as soul. It's this idea, this all-encompassing who you are, right? So when he's talking about life, he's not just talking about like your physical provision. He's not talking about like your dreams and aspirations. He's saying all the entirety of you, mind, body, soul, spirit, right? The, the material and the immaterial, all of you. He says, if you are committed to just doing all that you can to save your life, you're gonna lose it but if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it, right? This is the flip side of denying yourself. 
The opposite of denying yourself says, I'm gonna save myself. <laughs> and I'm gonna make sure that I've got what I want, when I want, what I need, when I need it. I'm gonna commit all of life. It's about me. It's about me. Christ is saying, that's, that's a losing game. Dude, that's, you're, gonna, you're gonna not end up where you wanna be. A life that is dedicated to self-indulgence or self-provision. He says, self-interest. He says, that's, that's in fact gonna lose. It's gonna lose everything that you hold dear. Why? Because you're incapable of saving yourself. You can't deliver yourself from the power of sin and death that ultimately will, will just destroy you. So, so instead, deny yourself. And so again, he, he remember, he said, you, you must take up your cross Right here, he says, well, what does it get benefit a person if he doesn't necessarily take up the cross? Let's say this person gains, takes up the whole world. He says, what's that worth? Nothing. It's worthless. That's why he says, what, what, in, what on this earth could a person possibly exchange for eternal life to save himself? It doesn't work. That's not part of God's economy. Jesus says, this is the alternative. You can choose to follow my command and in fact find life and eventually reward what we'll see in the last couple of verses. You can choose to follow my command. He says, or you can try to go your own way, but I'm telling you now, it's not gonna end well. So for us as believers, we have to remember the simple truth that eternal investment, it requires not just the right perspective, but it does require sacrifice. That's why Jesus is using these terms. He's talking about his own eventual experience. He takes up his cross. He denies himself to the point of death on the cross. He says, I'm gonna walk in obedience to my father so that he might accomplish his work of salvation for all of the world. In the same way, we are called to sacrifice. It's, a, it's an immediate, it's an upfront sacrifice with an eternal, amazing ultimate reward. But so often we choose to forego that initial sacrifice for that initial hit, that pleasure, that affirmation, that whatever it is. But what Jesus is saying is that if you, if you give up, if you don't choose to walk this road of sacrifice, of denying yourself, says eventually it's going to lead you to loss. Short-term gain, gain long-term loss. He says, you follow me, you sacrifice, short-term loss. Loss in that maybe you're not getting to do all the things you wanted to do. Maybe your life isn't turning out the way that you expected it when you were seven and dreaming about your future. It says, but that short-term loss, it actually leads you to long-term eternal gain. This is something that was impressed upon me without fail day after day by my middle school football coaches. And they did it in an interesting way where when they would look at us, these scrappy 12 and 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds, just maybe a 15-year-old because, you know, it happens. But we're just doing our best. And I remember without fail, every single day, our coaches, that one of the things they would always tell us, they'd be like, you've been, you've been sucking on too much Freon, boys. You're addicted to that Freon. They were also macho man Randy Savage. You're addicted to that Freon. Quit using that AC, makes you weak. 
Speaking of weakness, something they would tell us every single day, every single football practice, pain is just weakness leaving the body. Get it out, purge it. Nobody ever drowned in sweat, boys. Nobody ever drowned in sweat. And I learned in those formative years, I, I had to give up on my NFL dreams. Like, that was it. That was it. Because I wasn't ready to make those sacrifices. I think maybe I would have drowned in that sweat. Like, those helmets were tight. Like, I think it could have happened. And yet... When the Lord gives us these commands, when the Lord tells us about where we're headed, when he tells us about eternity, it's so easy for us to think, gosh, I just, I couldn't possibly give up this relationship. Oh, I couldn't possibly give up like this substance or, or this lifestyle or this approach or this attitude or these behaviors. And it's silly. Jesus is telling his followers, he says, there, there's so much more that's promised to you. Take up that cross, accept the suffering, deny yourself because there's a reward that awaits. This is what Paul tells the church in Rome. He says, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice or as a living sacrifice, alive, holy, pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service. This makes sense that you would live sacrificially for the Lord who has saved you who has promised eternity in bliss and glory with himself for you. He says, this is a reasonable service. So don't be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good, what is well-pleasing, what is perfect. He says, as you live in obedience to the Lord, God will transform you and your desire, or his desires will become your desires. His heart will, will shape your heart. His interests will become your interests. He says, if you're fleeing this, if you're running away because you think it looks hard or difficult or you don't want to, he says, that's just gonna lead you into greater conformity with the present world. What a waste. He says, be transformed by the Lord. Walk in obedience and the Lord is good to reveal himself, to give you wisdom and discernment to know what is good, to know what is well-pleasing, to know what is perfect. And yet again, there are things in our lives that we just assume must not be lost. I said it a moment ago. It could be a lifestyle, a behavior, an attitude, a reputation, something at work, something at home, something with friends, something with family. Gosh, just take your pick. But many times I think we almost inadvertently wind up clenching certain aspects of our life in these closed fists. When the Lord says, that stuff belongs to me. And I'll tell you, it's a lot more painful to have the Lord pry your fingers open than if you're willing to just pause and open your hands. So you know what, Lord? Every day belongs to you, every person in my life. You love my kids more than I ever could. God, you know what the future brings. God, all, all resources, all, all money and finances, God, it, it's ultimately under your control. Lord, you know the best way to walk, to, to deal with other people, to live in humility and grace. 
if we're willing to open these things up to the Lord, if we're, if we're not just convincing ourselves that there are certain non-negotiables, that somehow we know what's best in this area of life or that aspect of life, then the Lord says, you can trust me and we can walk in freedom and enjoy. So for us, as we examine our priorities, we should also be examining what do we consider essential? What is it that we need to actually hand to the Lord this year to say, you know what, God, I'm gonna have to trust you with this friendship. God, I'm gonna trust you with my kids. God, I'm gonna trust you with this work, this project, this whatever it might be. Jesus says, I want you to follow after me, to deny yourself, to take up your cross. He says, and what will come at the end is incredible, unblemishing, unmissable, unlosable reward. This is how he concludes in verse 27 and 28. He says, the son of man will come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Jesus says, follow after me because even though I will suffer, even though I will die, even after I am raised, the day will come while I will return. So you can walk in obedience, trusting, knowing that the Lord sees your work, that the Lord wants to reward a life well lived. And he says, I tell you the truth. There are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now there's discussion amongst biblical scholars around exactly what Jesus is pointing to. I think the most reasonable explanation is he's referring to uh, what happens immediately after this. At the beginning of chapter 17, it's a kind of unfortunate chapter break because at the very beginning of chapter 17, Matthew tells us, and then, so in other words, like right after this, probably about six days later, Jesus takes a few of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. They go to a hilltop and Jesus reveals himself in his glory, what we call the transfiguration of Christ. And he appears on this hilltop with Moses and Elijah. And Peter, James, and John get to witness the full glory and splendor of Christ. They get a taste of this coming kingdom, the glory of the Son of Man, the prophesied Messiah who would deliver the world and and establish a kingdom that would never end. Jesus says, some of you are going to actually get to see just a piece of this before you die. I'll tell you what's, what's just so human, what's so tragic even about these disciples is Peter, James, and John. You know what? When, Peter, when Jesus eventually does suffer, when he is killed, Peter, James, John, they all still cower in fear along with the others. Even with that taste, even with that reminder, even with that amazing revelation of glory, they still are prone to falter and to fail, just like all of us. But that's why we need continual reminders that internal investment, in fact, brings reward. This is what James told the early church. He says that the believer of humble means should take pride in his high position, but the rich person's pride should be in his humiliation because he will pass away like a wildflower in the meadow. James is speaking to early believers, telling them, hey, live according to the will of God to bring him glory. That's the purpose of your life. And so here in chapter one, he's talking about there's other ways you could live. There's other priorities you might set up. It says you might be tempted to trust in your riches, in a high position. 
says, but you know what? It won't last. It's like a wildflower in the meadow. For the sun rises with its heat and it dries up the meadow. And the petal of the flower falls off and its beauty is lost forever. So also the rich person in the midst of his pursuits will in fact wither away. But happy is the one who endures testing. Because when he has proven to be genuine, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. Over and over again in scripture, we have the promise of eternal reward. And yet so often we're tempted to assume that there are other rewards that we need. That if I pray enough, if I do enough, if I say enough, if if I'm kind enough, then, you know, these investments are going to pay off. That my kids are going to act the way I want them to act. That these friendships are going to be healed. That work is going to be easy. That I'm going to be comfortable. What do we assume must or should be our reward? Because when we examine the Lord's promises, God doesn't speak about comfort. Jesus never promises ease of life. He promises suffering. And he promises that beyond that suffering, there's a God who saves, who sees, who has a plan of salvation who rewards our faithfulness even under difficulty, even in the fire and the stress and the struggles of life. In the early 70s, there was a book written by an economist called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And it's used in business schools still to this day. Maybe some of you have read it. But in it, this economist, he talks about how there, is, there was a theory, or his theory that he was putting forth was that a blindfolded monkey could throw darts at the newspaper's financial page and create a better stock portfolio, or a, just as good as a, of a stock portfolio as any expert analyst. He's like, it would be just as good. That's his argument. And so one research firm said, yeah, we'll take that bet. And so they, they didn't actually get a bunch of monkeys. Some people have, but they, this one research firm, they started analyzing stock performances starting in the late 60s all the way up until 2011. In 2012, they released their findings. It was published through this article in Forbes where they talked about how, you know, they were like, oh, you know, that's kind of wild. Like, you know, a blindfolded monkey, come on. Well, guess what? (laughs) They were like, yeah, he's wrong. Because in fact, blindfolded monkeys outperform and do better than basically all professional analysts. They had 30 monkeys, or sorry, 100 monkeys who chose 30 stocks. So they had 30 random stocks out of a total, they created a stock universe of 1,000 different companies and stocks. And so they had these randomizers, 100 of them pick, okay, just pick 30, just, it could be anything. Dartboard at the wall. And what they found from the mid-60s all the way until 2011 is that on average, 98 out of the 100 monkeys whooped all the other portfolios that year. 98 outperformed the most prestigious you know, created index fund or the most, you know, well-constructed portfolio. Monkeys. 
When we think about our lives, when we think about our investments, sometimes we think, man, I, I know what's best. I've got the plan. Like, my kids are going to go to this school, and then they'll go to that school, and then they go to this place, and they're all married, and they give me grandkids. Or we think, you know what? I'm going to do this job, and then I'll get that job, and then I'll have this money, and I'll buy that boat. Let's go. You know, like that's, we've got these plans, and they might be great plans. We've got it all figured out. Or maybe some of us, our plan is, I don't need a plan. I'm just going to float, bro. It's going to be good. Live off the land. Die young, right? Like that's maybe our goal. And yet, the reality is that even in all of our greatest plans and even in our greatest, you know, projections and all of our study and all our analysis, man, not that God's a random monkey, but he does, in fact, have a greater plan. That he does, in fact, have a greater purpose. And he promises to us that we can trust him in this life as he's leading us towards the next So as we close in worship this morning, my encouragement, my hope is really simple. That we would consider, God, how are you leading me into this year? God, how are you guiding me to invest my life in eternity? Let's ask the Lord this morning. Let's ask the Lord, maybe later today, this week, talk with your spouse, talk with a friend, talk with a family member, share, man, that. I think this is where the Lord is leading me or ask for input. Where do you see the Lord leading me to invest my life that would have an impact and a legacy beyond this world and into eternity? The Lord wants to move us. He wants to guide. He wants to direct. We simply need to ask and be open for his direction. So as we prepare to sing his praise, let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us a direction and purpose. God, it's not that our lives are, are just meant to be a placeholder before we get to real, true life with you. But that, God, that in this time, in this temporary time of life, God, that we, in fact, have the opportunity Lord, to be used by you in the grand tapestry of eternal work. And so, Lord, we ask that you give us guidance and direction. Give us wisdom in how to invest our time, our talent, our treasure. If you would, take this moment now before we sing and just ask the Lord for that simple direction. God, show me, where is it that I need to maybe trust you in my life? God, where is it that that I need to rearrange my priorities? God, where is it that I lose sight of the fact that you have promised a reward that this world could never match, could never beat? Ask him for that direction, for that insight from his spirit right now.